If you have a Bible, you can grab it. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3. Well, uh, my name is R.D., and I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and great to be with you all this morning. I'm trying to say y'all more and more because I just went to Texas and I kept saying you all and they were like, you've been, you've already changed. You've already, you have already changed. You cannot even say y'all anymore. And so I may just drop it randomly in the message. Just if it's not even related to the point, just be like, he's working some things out. So it's just totally just allow me that pleasure this, this morning. And, um, so it's good to be with y'all. Um, this morning, and we have worked our way through the first two chapters of Luke, and we are starting chapter three. Actually, we're going to finish the entirety of chapter three this morning and hear what God has to say through us. And we're going to pick back up from actually the last time that I preached on John the Baptist. And the narrative has, in the meantime, shifted from John the baby Baptist to Jesus the baby and the teenager. And now Luke shifts the focus back to John. No longer the baby Baptist, but John the man Baptist. John, who's now become a man. He's come out of the wilderness, though he's still in the wilderness, because that's his mission field, is the wilderness. And so we want to look at what is the purpose of John the Baptist? Why, why does the gospel account spend so much time on this man? Why did they not just get straight to Jesus? Why is John, his message, so important for the people of Israel and also so important for, for us? And so we want to look at... We want to look at that. And so we'll just get right into it in verse 1 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eturia, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, stop there. First two verses, lots of names, right? There are actually seven names in there, which seems like, why all these names? Why all this history? Let's just get to the meat. Let's get to the message. But remember, Luke is writing specifically to one person. Obviously, he's writing to all of us. But he's writing to a man named Theophilus who has doubts about the credibility of Jesus and who Jesus is. And so he throws in all these names as if to say, hey, the gospel accounts are not once upon a time, right? They're not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? <laughs> Actually, there's flesh and there's blood and there's sweat all on the pages of the gospel accounts. They happen in history, in a local place, in real time. It's not, Christianity is not a religion that is just spiritual, that kind of happened in the heavens and then there's some kind of truth dropped down and you should kind of live like this, but there's no real meat to it. No, Luke is saying these things actually happen. You can go look up who was the governor, who was the leader at this time. So you can see that I'm actually referencing people who lived and existed and ruled and reigned to kind of center the account of the life of Jesus, the life of John, in real time. I'm not making this up. It's not a legend. It's eyewitness testimony. The gospel are eyewitness accounts. And there's great scholarship on that throughout all of the world. And there's, there's other history at this time which validates the claims of Luke here. He's not the only one who is saying these things. So you can go look up, was this really true? Did this really happen? Right? It's not really a question that Jesus existed. No one really disputes that, no matter what you believe. No one disputes that Jesus existed. The dispute is over what he said and what he did. 
and whether you believe in that or not. But there is no dispute that he actually existed. So this actually happens in about the year A.D. 29. So this is, this is when this text is taking place, A.D. 29, 28, 29, sometime around there. We know that based on the reign of Tiberius Caesar in verse 1. So during this time, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So John is a prophet, and the word of God comes to him. And that's what we want to talk about, because we don't want to hear what John has to say. We don't want to hear just what some dude has to say. We want to hear what the word of God has to say. What does God want to communicate through John? God has not spoken through a prophet in over 400 years. Since the book of Malachi, over 400 years previous to this text, God has not spoken through a prophet. And so you think maybe what God's message is for John is going to be very important. If you're quiet for 400 years and then you say something, that thing you finally talk about may be of massive importance, right? Yes, yes, it may be of massive importance. So we want to see what is the word of God that comes to John? What is God concerned with? As he sets up the stage for the ministry of Jesus. Well, verse 3 gives us the answer. John went into all the country around Jordan, preaching, here it is, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the central message of John's ministry, and it's the central message of the ministry of Jesus is repentance, this word to repent, this word that we need to repent. And if you're like me, for most people, you hear the word repent and maybe you start to get nervous, right? You have these images of the old time revival, old Baptist church, and the guy's just saying repent and usually a a very Southern voice, which I could do really well, but I will spare you that because we're not going to go quite down that road um, this morning. But isn't that kind of, you hear the word repent when you actually hear it in church, which is not as much anymore. And you kind of have these feelings of like guilt and, oh, here we go. I'm a terrible person. I need to repent, you know, turn or burn. Ever heard they got to turn? You got it. You're going to burn, right? I heard, am I the, okay, my church. Okay. No worries. It was just me, I guess. It was just me. And it, it like scars you because that's what you connect repentance to. And, uh, in that vein, um, this is an extreme example, but I think somewhere in this vicinity is maybe what a lot of us think of when we think of repentance, when we think of the word and the concept and the idea. My, in high school, my, a friend and I um, saw in the paper in our small town of Maryville, Maryville, if you're from East Tennessee, uh, in the paper that there was going to be a revival, a good old revival at a Baptist church just down the road from my parents' house because it's East Tennessee. And so the revivals at Baptist churches all the time. And I was like, I want to go. I've never been to a revival. Like old school in the tent. What's going to happen? I have no idea. I just want to go see it. There's like a nine-year-old who's going to be preaching that night. And I thought, this I also want to see. A nine-year-old preaching. This is going to be fantastic. And so my friend and I went. There's like 150 people, you know, all from, all from the church, which is called Butterfly Gap Baptist Church, which is a fantastic church, just 10 minutes from my parents' house. And uh, so we went there. And as we kind of drove up and then walked into the tent, uh, I, I thought that everyone just started staring at us. Like, here are the heathens, right? Here, here are the pagans. Here are the two people who saw it in the paper. They've come to repent of all their sins and to be changed. I could just, everyone just like stopped what they're doing and like looked at us. And I'm like, okay. So we sat down on the benches and they had benches all lined up out, outside. And then just people after people began preaching about like repentance, right? You are evil, right? You need to repent. What if you left here and got hit by a bus tonight and did not repent? I was like, 
I, wow, that's really intense. I think I'm, I, I'm already a Christian. I feel good. Like, but over time, I was like, am I a Christian? Am I saved? What if I got hit by a bus when I left here, right? I'm starting to doubt my own salvation. And this is what sometimes happens at these type of uh, revival meetings. And so over and over again, though, this just theme of like, you need to repent because you're wicked, because the day of the Lord is coming and you need to get right with the Lord. And if you don't, right, you're going to die in your guilt and die and your sins. And at one time during all that, you know, they had these guys who were walking up and down the aisle like this with like lanterns. It's like really, really creepy. And they were just like, there's like 15 year old guys. They'd be like, you need to repent. And they just like stare at my friend, Chris and I, and I'd be like, who, who are you? St- what is happening? And they just, and they walk back up the aisle and they come back and they just say, you need to repent. I'm like, I, what, what is happening right now? And so we're trying to find a way to escape because it was like going on a two hour mark. And uh, at one point, a a guy in front of us just stands up in the middle of a song, and he goes, I repent! And he runs off into the forest. And everybody starts clapping, like, yes, someone has repented! And I was like, I think we should go follow that guy. I don't think, I think he's, I think he's trying to escape, actually. I think that's what he's doing. Because we never saw him again. I looked at Chris, and I'm like, dude, I don't think, what's happening? And so when they're like celebrating, I was like, Chris, get up, we're going to get out of here. And so we got in the car and just like rolled out of there. And there's, who knows, they're probably still having that revival. It's like six years ago. It's still going on. And I, I, I use that story as kind of an extreme example, but I think somewhere in the vicinity of that type of environment, that type of very emotionally intense, manipulative, just like you are evil, you are terrible, is what we think of in the context of repentance. For, for most of us or most of the people, that surely most of the people who are not Christian that you know, that's what they think of. And so what I want to do is say that's not what repentance is and help remove this biblical word and actually put it in its place and say repentance is actually a grace and a gift of God to restore to us the joy of our salvation. It's not meant as a guilt trip. It's not meant as for a way for us to avoid punishment. It's actually God initiates repentance so that we might turn from our sin and turn towards him and restore to us the salvation God first gave to us. And so that's what John is going to be talking about. And that's what the text here is going to be talking about. But there is going to be some clear bad news and good news in the text. There's going to be both of these things. Three things we want to look at this morning. Number one, the need for repentance. Number two, the response of repentance. And number three, the hope in repentance. So I'll repeat them again if you're taking notes. Number one, the need for repentance. Number two, the response of repentance. And number three, the hope in repentance. Number one, the need for repentance. Let's keep going in verse three. John went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers. Oh boy, easy John. Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Okay, so a lot there. This is, sounds a little bit like some fire and brimstone preaching, right? Does it not sound like that? Okay. Here's what John is saying. He's, he, what's happening here is that people are coming out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. Now, this is not like the baptism that you and I participate in after, we, after conversion, because there is no conversion yet because Christ is, no long, is not here yet. Right. So this is a, a pre-cross, pre-Christian baptism, whereby if you were a Gentile, which is the word for everyone who's not Jewish, if you were a Gentile, you would be baptized to become Jewish. And so what's happening here is that the people are wanting to become Jewish. They're wanting to trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so there's going to be a baptism to move them from uh, whatever they've been believing in to, to Judaism, which at that time, at this time, is, is good. But for the Jews, they didn't have to be baptized because they're already good to go. They had the resume. They had the family history. They had the religion. They're covered. So it's just for the Gentiles who had to be washed because they were impure. They weren't in the covenant family. They're thinking, we don't, we don't have to do this. We're already, we're already good. And so what John says here, what John says here, he kind of blows this up. He says, um, first he says, you brood of vipers which is not, he did not take the seeker-sensitive preaching class in seminary, right? This is, this is not it. Okay, you brood of vipers. And what he's doing there is for all the Jewish people who are coming to him, the chosen people of God, he's saying, you are a brood of vipers. And he's connecting that through the um, serpent in Genesis chapter 3, which is following the path of the enemy. And saying, you are following the path of the enemy. You are not following the will and the, the rule of God in your life. You are a brood of vipers. Who told you? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You, you too, not just the Gentiles, but you Jewish people, you also have to repent. Because all people need to repent. All people now are required to repent and to turn to the Lord God. There's no one who's now special. Everyone is now required to submit to repentance. And so apparently, though, what they said is that we have Abraham as our father. Because John says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So what they're saying is like, John, dude, first, calm down. <laughs> Secondly, we're good. We're co- we don't, repentance is for these other people who've made all these mistakes. And John says, do not begin to say that. And they're probably like, what? Because God is able to raise from these stones people. God is the one who saves. God is the one who rescues. Not your religion, not your family history, not what you bring to the table. None of that now covers you because every single one of us has turned away from the creator to pursue other things to bring us joy. And so now you, like everyone else, has to submit to baptism. You have to submit to repentance. Right? There's this complete equality now for all people. And this applies to all of us as well, because if we look at the scriptures, we see that all of us have turned away. Go to Psalm 14. It'll be on the screen. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven on all mankind. Keywords there are on all mankind. So not one group of people, but every group of people. To see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All, all, everyone, have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, part of verse 6 says this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that 
all of us, made in the image of God, have by our willful choice disobeyed God and turned away from God and then gone around God to find our joy, to find our purpose, to find our meaning, and to find our value. All of us have turned away. None of us are truly seeking God and longing for the things of God. We are all following the path of idolatry, which means that you and I do not naturally seek God. We do not naturally seek God. And so what John is saying here is that now all people who have turned away now have to be turned back to God. It's a hard teaching. It's not an easy, warm, fuzzy teaching, right? And what John is saying, what Jesus is saying is that there actually are no good people. There are only dead people who I've come to raise to life. And until you humble yourself, until we understand that we all need to repent, there can be no restoration in our heart. If we think, well, that's just for other people. That's just for these people. I'm a good person. I go to church. I know they're bad people and they're really rough people, you know, and we sometimes see their stories of grace, but I was a church person. I, good, I know I don't do this all the time. I don't always do that, but really, really, <laughs> I'm equal with that. I'm equal with him. I'm equal with her. John the Baptist says all of you are equal, right? Because we've all turned away from God by pursuing things outside of God and saying, this is what I'm searching for, right? The sin that lurks beneath every single sin in your life is wanting to be your own savior and wanting to be in control and wanting to pursue your way for your life. And that happens by pursuing unrighteousness and it happens by pursuing righteousness. And so now all of us need to repent. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. John says, everybody has to repent. So he lowers the boom on them. We too have to repent. Wow. Okay, well, what should we do then? Don't you wish they asked that? Good news, they did ask that. (laughs) I always like when Scripture actually asks the question that I'm asking. Okay, he's lowered the boom on them, then what should they do? Well, verse 10 says, what should we do then, the crowd asked. So that's the second point, the response of repentance. The need for repentance is that all of us have turned away and are finding joy outside of Jesus, outside of God. So how, how do we turn? How do we, how do we turn? If, if repentance is this idea, literally it means to, to turn. So you're, you're going one way, you're, you're walking one way, and to repent, just irregardless of spiritual connotations, means to turn and to walk in a new way, to be reoriented in a new way, to have your life reoriented around a new center and a new normal. And so to repent then spiritually means to turn from your sin. Remember, because you've turned away from God. And so to repent means to turn away from your sin and to turn towards God for your salvation and your joy. That's what it means. And so John wants to walk through a few examples of how we actually turn. What does repentance look like? Is it just saying, I'm sorry? Is it praying a prayer? Is it reading your Bible? Is it fasting? What does it look like to actually repent? How is that good news? And so the people ask that too, like, what should we do now? We aren't feeling very good right now. How do we respond? John answered, verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. I read that and I was like, God, I was thinking it's going to be deeper than that, <laughs> right? I was thinking it was going to be like, look to the birds in the air and meditate and then you will know the answer, right? 
that sometimes the Bible, sometimes it's just, it's, it's like that sometimes. And you've got to spend a lot of time. What? It's like, what, how should we turn? What are we supposed to do now? And John says, hey, kids, you need to share. Right? That, the things we teach our kids from the very beginning, they need to share. He's like, actually, an act of repentance is actually sharing what you have with others. Because you've turned away from the creator, you've turned away from being generous, and now you're hoarding all these things for yourself because you're building up your life for you. You have more clothes than you need, you have more shoes than you need, you have more money than you need, you have more stuff than you need. And so an act of turning away from the kingdom of this world is to share with others. Right? Repentance is an act of rebellion against the kingdom of this world that says, this is the way it is, and we repent. And so he just says, hey, guys, I want to make it really easy for you. Obviously, this is not the only way to repent. But he says, anyone who has two shirts should share. Anyone who has food should do the same. It's an easy takeaway, an easy application, hopefully, for your week. An act of repentance for you this week could simply be this, to open up your table to someone else instead of closing your table. Because what sin does is it separates us from people and it moves us inward. Right? What repentance does is it moves us outwards and restores our relationship with God and restores our relationship with people. That's why John says, share your life with others. Share your things with others. Repent of being selfish. People are like, okay, wow, good, good. Okay, what else? There's some more questions. Even the tax collectors, always the tax collectors, no one has ever liked them, okay? <laughs> Even Luke's like, even they came, you know? Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. But it's an example of even them. So anyone, right? Anyone can be changed. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, like they're basically saying rabbi. They asked, what should we do? This would be a great time for John to have said, right? There's no need for taxes. Let's overthrow the government, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, yes. Is that what the Greek actually says? No, it's not. Sorry, it's not what it says. It's not what it says. Um, it'd be an easy time, though. They're saying, for, for, in our profession, in, our, in, my, in my life, what does repentance look like for me? Because for all of us, it applies to sharing our life. But then John's going to get specific, and he's, he's gonna, they're going to ask him, as a task collector, what does it look like for me to repent? What should I do? And so John, he says this. He says, well, here's what it looks like for you. Don't collect any more than you're required to do. Is that, is that it? Is that just don't collect, like do my job honestly? John's like, yes, because you've turned away and you are collecting way more than you should. And the people underneath you are being crushed and are suffering because you're collecting way more taxes than you need. And all you're doing is just building up your own kingdom. And so he says, repent from that, turn away from that and turn back to the Lord, transform what you're doing. He doesn't say, go get a new job. He says, transform the way you're doing your job now. Now, that's a profound teaching. He doesn't say, go to a monastery. He doesn't say, become a pastor. He doesn't say, go to the mission field, though some of you may be called to that. He says, what has God called you to do? Do that with honor and respect and fairness. And you're repenting against the kingdom of this world. And you're saying, there's a greater king. And the way in which I'm doing my job, I'm turning from the darkness into the light. Right? It's so simple, and yet it's actually really profound. Don't get a new job. Do your job differently. And then some soldiers came in. You always got to have the soldiers. <laughs> and some soldiers asked him, what should we do? Same type of thing, right? Should you throw down your arms? 
Should we become pacifists? Should we make war to create the kingdom of God? John could say any of those things. He just lays it out. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Again, okay, is that, that's the, there's a period there? That's, that's the extent of what you're requiring me to do? And he's saying clearly all the, the Jewish soldiers have turned away from the law of God and they have been extorting money, they've been accusing people falsely, and they have not been content with their pay. They've been discontent. And John says, no, 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 no. Turn from that, transform that. So now become a soldier who is not extorting people, who's not accusing people falsely. Be content with your pay. Be content with your life. Be content with who you are in the Lord. That is the way that you practice repentance. They're like, okay, so I can still be a soldier. I just, I have to change. I have to reorient myself now, right? Repentance is reorientation to the will and the way of Jesus. It's a new normal, the center of which is Jesus. And so you're reorienting your life around who Jesus is. And on the it's very basic, right? It's, it's like living out the Ten Commandments. I don't like have any special like dust to scrattle over you. It's like actually do things honestly, right? Serve others. Be generous. Practice justice. Love your neighbors. Love your spouse. Serve others. Be selfless. This is how you reorient yourself to the will and the way of God. And what I love about this is that there, there's community-wide repentance that we all need to do. All of us need to practice that. But then for you and I, the Holy Spirit has certain things that you need to repent of specifically, right? That's not for other people. I love this because the Holy Spirit is going to zero in on each one of you and say, hey, here's some ways you need to turn. Here's ways you need to transform your marriage, your job, your singleness, all these type of things he's going to walk through. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. So I don't know what that looks like for you. You may not know what that looks like for you. That's why you need to maybe ask someone, which can be a very dangerous question, right? Hey, what are the ways I need to repent? Make sure you ask the right person that question, okay? If you ask your spouse, they may, may be like, finally, I'm ready. He, let me go grab that list, <laughs> right? That could, that could be what happens. And for some of you, maybe that needs to be what happens, right? But it's not just your spouse. Whether it's a life group, it's a community of people who can speak truth into your life because you will never change. You will never repent if it's just you. And there's no one in your life who can say, hey, here's some ways you need to turn. Here's some ways you need to change. If it's just me, I can make a lot of promises. It's never going to happen unless someone in my life is holding me accountable. Unless someone in my life is asking me the hard questions. Now, it's someone in my life who's speaking truth to me, but speaking it gently and compassionately. Not just someone who's knocking me over the head with a guilt trip. Right? That's not what repentance is. So for all of us, we need people, not just a spouse, multiple people in our life who we could ask the question, what should we do? What should I do? How do I need to repent in my life? Ask the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you there's some ways. And it's not for you can just deal with guilt. It is a grace of God that he leads us into repentance so that we can change and not stay the same. But it tastes asking hard questions. And a good example of someone who was not humble and didn't have people he could talk to is King Herod. Let's jump down to verse 19. Here's someone who did not deal with being rebuked really well, which none of us really deal with it well. Verse 19, 
But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John, he doesn't care who he's talking to. He's laying out the same message. Repent. <laughs> Turn, transfer, reorient yourself to the way of God. He's not just talking to soldiers and lawyers and the Jewish people. He's rebuking the king, King Harry. He's saying, hey, what you're doing is evil. You need to turn. You need to change because the way in which you're living is sinful and wicked and it's only going to bring you ruin and death. That's a hard message. But if King Herod was to respond to it and change, his life would have been so much more rich and joyful and better. But instead of responding well, he, what does he do? He throws John in prison. That may be what some of you want to do with people in your life. <laughs> may not have the power to do it. It's kind of a weird example, but I think it actually, it's, it's here for a reason because John's rebuking all these people and Herod says, I don't want any of that. I want to keep living my life my way. I don't want to hear truth. I don't want to hear that I have to change. I don't want to hear that I have to be different. So why don't you just go to prison with all of your principles? How do you think life went for King Herod? Refusing to repent is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for hopelessness and pain and brokenness and loneliness and self-righteousness. Be open to repenting. And if, if you are someone who you feel like, man, the Lord's kind of laid somebody on my heart or I want to share this with somebody, speak truth to someone with grace and with love. Saying, hey, let's work on this together. <laughs> right? That's received so much better than, hey, let me tell you all the ways that you're messing up so you can change. That's never helpful. It's never, hey, I got some things I messed up on. I want to change. Can you help me change? Let's change together through the power of Jesus. That sounds like the church. That sounds like the church. The response of repentance is up to you. How do you respond when you know you need to change? Okay, last point. We all need to repent. We all need to turn back. There's a one-time repentance that all of us must have. There's a one-time moment where we all, at, at one moment, need to say we repent of our sins. We confess Jesus as our Savior. And in that moment, you are adopted. God saves you and God reconciles you in that moment of repentance. But repentance is not a one-time thing. It is an all-the-time practice for Christians. You say, well, I repented once, so now I'm good, right? All my sins are covered. Yeah, they're covered, but... For believers, repentance is actually our life now. Right, Martin Luther, have you heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer? When he nailed the 95 Theses to the door at the Wittenberg Cathedral, 95 Theses, his first sentence on that was, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, who has willed for all of our life to be one of repentance. A continual turning back to the Lord. Now, why is this good news and not like begrudging terrible news? <laughs> It sounds kind of bleak, right? All of life is repentance. Here's why it's not bleak. Because it's not just repentance for repentance sake. The point of repentance is something greater. Back up in verse 3, we read this of chapter 3. John went into all the country around the Jordan, Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. Point 3 is the hope of repentance. The hope of repentance is that your sins are forgiven and you can recover joy in Jesus through continual repentance. That's the hope. If it's just repent, 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 if that's the end goal, then that's hopeless. 
Because then you're just continually repenting and you're not sure why you're repenting. But you have to tie repentance to a person. Repentance to the one who can forgive your sins. Who can continually restore you back to himself. And that's who John shifts the focus to next in this passage. Who is this person who can do this? Who can actually forgive your sins? Verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed good news to them. Good news? That sounds like some bad news. Right? Jesus is coming. There's going to be a, there's a fire over here. He's got the fork in his hand, which sounds kind of scary. He's going to be separating the people. How is this good news? It is not good news only that God comes near. For a lot of people, that's going to be bad news. It is good news if when God comes near, we can also come near to him. That is good news. Bad news becomes good news when it's gospel news. Bad news is transformed into good news when Jesus is at the center of it. John is saying, I am baptizing you outwardly, but there's one who is coming who is going to put new life in you, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, so much greater than just a water baptism. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, give you a new heart, a new creation. So now you will be able to turn from your sin and turn back to him, right? Because we can't turn on our own, right? God's the one who's going to initiate our repentance. He's going to initiate our turning. And John's saying, he is coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie the strap on his sandals. He's so much greater than I. He's so much bigger than I. And because he's coming near, we can draw near to God on the day of judgment. And because Jesus is coming, we can endure the day of judgment that is coming. this This is very profound. John is looking into the future, but you and I can look into the past because Jesus has come. And so now we don't have to approach the day of judgment with fear, but with joy because we know we're in Jesus if we've repented of our sins and we continue repenting and trusting in Christ. This is illustrated pretty well in 1 Thessalonians. It will be on the screen, verses 9 and 10. There's a report of the church that's gone through some massive transformation, and it's really beautiful. And so Paul and Timothy are commenting on their transformation in verse, part of verse 9. They say, You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen, amen, amen. Paul is saying, we've heard that you were turned away from God, but now you've turned back to the living God. And so uh, repentance is not just turning away from sin, but turning towards Jesus. Because if you just turn away from sin and turn to something else, that's not good news. But if you turn away from your sin and then turn to Jesus, but not just that, Jesus is the one who turns you back to himself and then brings you to himself, that's great and glorious news. And so this is the whole point of it. He said, you've turned from your sin, turned from your idols, turned from finding joy outside of the gospel, and you're now serving the living God. And why are you doing this? Because you're afraid? No. Because you want to be better people? No. Because you love Jesus, and he rescues you from the coming wrath, right? You've been changed by Jesus, and so now you want to change for the glory of Jesus. This is profound. 
They're churning because of who God is and what God has done. This is gospel repentance. And this is what God longs for us because when you divorce repentance from redemption, you get hopelessness. Right? You just get religion. You get guilt. You get punishment. So I want to just illustrate that with a few points um, separating religious repentance from gospel repentance. In religious repentance, it's me-centered. Right? It's about me appeasing God and God being happy with me. Gospel repentance is God-centered. In religious repentance, it's about atoning for my sins through better behavior. Gospel repentance is about trusting in the atoning work of Christ to cover all of my behavior, good and bad. In religious repentance, I am grieved because of the consequences of turning away from God. In gospel repentance, I am grieved because I turned away from God at all. In religious repentance, I believe that if I'm a better man, God will be pleased with me. In gospel repentance, I believe that God is pleased with me because Jesus is a better man, and I trust him. In religious repentance, we repent because of our unrighteousness, the bad things we've done. In gospel repentance, we, we repent because of our unrighteousness and our righteousness, knowing it's only through the work of Christ that we're saved. In religious repentance, it's done less and less and less because every time I do it, it crushes me because my life is built on my moral performance. And every time I fail, I feel like a failure. And God is displeased with me. In gospel repentance, it's done more and more because every time I do it, it restores the joy of my salvation because my life is built on the performance of Jesus. Repentance is always going to be a little bit bitter because we've sinned. But the gospel makes it sweet. God is gracious enough to initiate repentance towards us so that we might, we might return to him and restore the joy of our salvation and bring renewed vitality and vigor to our faith. A repenting person is someone who's tapping into the joy of Jesus and saying his rule, his way, his purpose for me. And every time we repent, it's an act of beautiful worship to God. We return to him. John says here in Luke chapter 3, he says, Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? You caught that verse at verse 8. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Why are you here seeking me? Why have you come to me? He's trying to get this difference between gospel repentance and religious repentance. Why are you here? Are you here to save your skin? Are you here to, to be saved from the wrath because you don't want to suffer? Or are you here because of who God is? Because you love God. Is that why you're here? Is that why you want to be baptized? Is that's why you want to repent? It can be easy in repentance to dwell too much in our sins and not dwell on Jesus. John is saying, no. He's saying, why have you come out here? Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Here's how you and I know that confidently and securely we can repent to God and he still loves us and still cares for us. Because at the bottom of chapter three here, it says this in verse 21, it's the baptism of Jesus. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
Why does Jesus get baptized? Why does this man need to become pure? Why does he need to go through the rite of baptism? Because he wants to identify with all of us sinners. He says, I'm going to throw my lot with them. And I'm going to be baptized just like any one of them. Because one day I'm going to die on the cross in their place and for them. And in that moment when he identifies with the sinners, when he goes through the ritual of death to life, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and the voice of God himself says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. I love you. And because God says that to Jesus, when we are in Jesus and identified with him, God says it to us. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased because of what Christ has done for you. So now come home and repent and return to me and be changed. I think what we can say is with the people from 1 Peter, we can say this every single day of our life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For, remember this verse? For you were like sheep going astray, turning your own way, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Repent and return and restore to your life the joy of salvation. This is the message of Luke chapter 3. This is the message of the gospel of Luke. This is the message of the Bible. Repent and return, and come home.